The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Remain standing as I read Ecclesiastes 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a long, a long section, but we'll look at the whole thing, 1 through 26 of Ecclesiastes 2. Remember, as I'm reading, as you're following along, listening, and perhaps following along in your Bibles, this is, this is God's word that we're hearing. Ecclesiastes 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because Sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and all his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Our Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit might work through your word even in our hearts this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. This is somewhat dated, but in 2013, now eight years ago, Forbes magazine ran an article. I believe it may have been the cover of Forbes magazine in that particular month. And the article was entitled, What is Quality of Life? You've all heard that phrase, quality of life. It's often employed at various points, particularly when end-of-life discussions are being had. What is quality of life? And the summary paragraph from this Forbes magazine article actually came in the middle, and part of it reads this way. An analysis of scientific papers over the past 20 years shows that a precise, clear, and shared definition is a long way off. Often researchers don't even attempt to define the concept, instead using it as an indicator. The conclusion of the article, this long, well-researched article from Forbes magazine, was simply that researchers do not know how to define quality of life. It's a term that's used, and it's a term that holds some purchase in our minds. But when you get down to it and ask the question, what do we mean when we say quality of life? What would quality of life even look like? researchers really have no idea. There is a research unit at the University of Toronto called the Quality of Life Research Unit, and it defines quality of life in this way, the degree to which a person enjoys the important possibilities of his or her life. And then it's broken into three headings, being, belonging, and becoming. But a little scratching beneath the surface will show that even those things, although they appear to give more definition, really aren't backed up in any substantive way by the research that's done. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes is addressing this kind of issue. Are there things in life that bring to it a kind of quality, a kind of solidity? Are there things which, when pursued, actually change his conclusion at the beginning of the book that everything is a fleeting vapor, a merest breath, says the preacher. All is merest breath. And he approaches this from three different angles. He pursues three different ideas of what might give meaning and significance and solidity to the life that we live here on earth. And in these three categories, he, he, which he pursues with the uh, greatest resources that anyone could have had at his disposal, uh, he concludes much the same thing, that in each of them, uh, there's no basic change, that the, the ephemeral nature of life is still maintained. Well, let's look at these three. The first one that he pursues is what we, what we might call the pursuit of pleasure. This really comes up in verses 1 through 11. Now, the pleasure that he pursues takes many different forms. Often when we think of pleasurable pursuits, some of the things that he does 
might come uh, fall under that category in our thinking, but he pursues things that are more substantial than what we normally think of as a life-pursuing pleasure. We see, first of all, that he pursues laughter in verse 2, and he immediately dismisses that. Well, it holds some uh, immediate value. It, it ultimately disappears very quickly. He says, in fact, laughter is mad, and of pleasure as a whole, he says, what use is it? And he pursues some other kinds of things that fall under this broad heading of pleasure. He pursues drinking in verse 3. I searched my heart without a cheer my body with wine, and my mind was still guided by wisdom. In other words, I wasn't just doing this haphazardly. Uh, I was actually thinking through how I might maximize my pleasure through wine. And he concludes much the same thing that he's already concluded, that I concluded that actually that this was uh, really uh, something that didn't bring any solidity at all to life. He pursues not just laughter and drinking, but he pursues in verses five through six, four through six, the building of houses and vineyards. Now, this might be something that we would consider a little more substantial. Uh, we would easily say that something like the pursuit of drinking is, is just a mindless kind of uh, pursuit of pleasure, but, but these things are a little more substantial. He's, he's engaged in these great building projects. In fact, some have noted, some commentators note that what he's trying to do here is almost recreate the, the Garden of Eden in some respects. Some of the terminology that, that uh, is used here, particularly in verse 5, reminds us uh, of the situation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Look at what it says. He, he made great works. He built houses. He planted vineyards. And then in verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And he made these pools to water the trees. Again, it's reminiscent of the garden account in Genesis chapter 2. He does all of these things, what we might say are uh, fall under the categories of environmental projects and building projects and public works and homes for himself and buildings for others, all of this being guided by wisdom to see if at the end of the day, they change the basic nature of the equation. He doesn't stop there. We see in verse 8 that he gathers together, he amasses great wealth for himself. We also see in verse 8 that he tries to pursue entertainment of all kinds, not necessarily what we might consider to fit into our modern definition of entertainment, but certainly the ancient definition of entertainment. He, he got singers and men and women, and he pursues sexual pleasure as well. Many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. He pursues all of these things to their logical end. And when we look at ourselves, and even when we look at our own culture, perhaps you can think of close friends that you've known for some time, we can see that in, in some shape or form, many people around us naturally gravitate toward these kinds of projects. Now, the difference between them and Solomon is that oftentimes they can't quite grasp what it is that they're going after. Solomon was able to take all of these to their logical conclusion. He actually could build the house of his dreams. He actually could create the perfect physical environment. He actually could manipulate the environment around him. He actually could pursue all the entertainment and drink all the wine that anyone ever might want. 
people engage in these kinds of personal projects all the time. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us of is this, if nothing else, all of these projects, every one of them, are undone by death. All you have to do is drive around in areas where people have lived for some time. My brother and sister-in-law live in a neighborhood that I suppose would be considered a a sort of uh, expensive neighborhood, but actually, on the way to their neighborhood, you pass houses that are uh, multiple times larger than their own. Only those houses, in some cases, are often in total disrepair. They were the, the lifetime pursuit, the lifetime project of someone perhaps only 50 or 75 years ago. And now they simply lie in ruins. Why is that? Well, it's because all of these projects is undone by death itself. This is the conclusion that the preacher draws in verse 11. I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, trying to grasp a hold of this merest breath, nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, to some extent, we have to acknowledge that we don't as Christians, have a tremendous difficulty making sense of these first 11 verses. I think all of us who are trained at all in the Christian faith, all of us who have read our Bibles would say, yes, that's right. You're never going to find meaning and satisfaction. You're never going to find anything solid in life in the pursuit of pleasure. We've seen enough cautionary tales. We've perhaps experienced enough of this in our own lives to know that what he says is certainly true. All of these things is ephemeral. Each of them uh, comes and goes. And and at the end of the day, uh, ultimately everyone dies. And so the projects come to an end. But it becomes a little more difficult when he engages in his second pursuit in this chapter. Because beginning in verse 12, he turns his attention from pleasure to wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom. Now, this is where we struggle as Christian readers of this text, because his conclusions about living wisely are in some cases eerily similar to his conclusions about the pursuit of pleasure. What does he say about wisdom? Well, we might put it into two categories. The first thing he says is that wisdom in itself is a good thing that wisdom is better than folly. We can't miss this in the text. It's very important. In verse 13, what he says is, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. In other words, if you have the choice, choose wisdom. Wisdom will bring about more gain than folly will bring about, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. He goes on to give this analogy. The wise man has eyes in his head. He actually sees what's happening. He sees the consequences of his actions. He sees what other people are doing. He he listens to instruction. This fits with what we read in the rest of Scripture. Proverbs is very clear to us that wisdom is better than folly. In fact, wisdom is of tremendous value. What does Solomon say in Proverbs 8? Wisdom is better than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. And so the comparison between wisdom and pleasure is obvious. Wisdom is better than folly, and wisdom provides great advantages. But here is the difficulty with this section. While he says that wisdom is better than folly, and wisdom is 
a correct pursuit. He says that the same basic cycle obtains with the wise man as it does with the man who is pursuing pleasure. Look at verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. What the writer of Ecclesiastes is reminding us of is this, that while wisdom is better than folly, wisdom doesn't change the basic equation established in the book. The wise man will still die. And the wise man will be forgotten after he dies, just as quickly as the fool will be forgotten. In fact, later on in the book, the writer of Ecclesiastes will give some specific examples of this of wise men who, through their wisdom, saved a great deal of people, saved a great city. And what he will say in those instances is, the difficulty is, when you watch what happened, they were quickly forgotten. And that's his conclusion here. He goes on to give a similar conclusion about work and toil. It's similar to what he says about wisdom, because he agrees that hard work is better than laziness, just as wisdom is better than folly. He recognizes that, in fact, uh, work will bring about rewards. Work will bring about benefits. There's a sort of cause and effect. If you work hard, generally speaking, the Bible is clear that there will be good results or enjoined to hard work in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But the question about work is a difficult one because what he also acknowledges is this, that when you work hard and receive the benefit from that hard work, look at what happens after you die. Verse 19, who knows whether he will be a wise, be wise or a fool. That is the, the person who will inherit all that you've worked for. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. There's an additional problem with work. And it's manifested in verse 23. The one who works hard, all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Any of you who've worked hard on something and who have a a big project that you're undertaking know this to be the case. It's always on your mind. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, or if you aren't consciously thinking about it, it's somewhere back there in the back of your head. Greater to Ecclesiastes recognizes this. Is hard work better than laziness? Yes, of course it is. Does hard work bring about benefit? Yes, of course it does. Ah, but remember, those things that you've worked for will go to someone else. And remember as well that there's vexation tied up in this. Now, this is troubling for us because we would certainly evaluate some of the things that the writer pursues differently from others. Uh, We would have no problem saying that some of the pursuits in the first 11 verses are sinful pursuits and certainly great folly. But wisdom and work are good things, good pursuits. We know that some of these things are sinful, and we know that all of these things do end when one dies, that they're a kind of chasing after the wind. 
but not all of them are sinful activities. This is why one commentator, James Crenshaw, has called this book and even this chapter of the book the strangest in all of the Bible. Because wisdom and work, we know, are good things. So what can we conclude from his analysis? What are we supposed to do with this as we look at our own lives? Well, I think there's a framework that the writer gives us, even in this strangest chapter, in the strangest book, perhaps, for how to think these things through. Now, I want to suggest to you that this framework that the writer presents could be set in contrast to some false frameworks that we often are drawn to in the Christian life. Most people, in fact, most Christians within the church deal with a chapter like this by by simply ignoring it or by twisting it in such a way that it's beyond recognition. Now, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, to his credit, does not ignore these realities of life, but most people do. Most people kid themselves into thinking that his conclusions are simply false conclusions. Most of us don't like thinking about the fact, the reality, in fact, that in a hundred years, we'll all likely be long forgotten. And part of the message of this book is that we need to wake up. That those false frameworks to which we're drawn just won't do. They don't explain the realities of life, and they don't equip us in the way the Bible wants us to be equipped. I think one of the takeaways of a chapter like this is that we need to wake up and start thinking. We'll start seeing when we put down many of our distractions that what the Bible says about human pursuits of this kind is true. He's describing the realities of a fallen world, the world in which we live. He's describing life outside of the Garden of Eden in all of its complexity. There's another false framework that we may be drawn to, especially when we're confronted with a chapter like this, and that's this. We we might be drawn to say, well, if this is the case, then I shouldn't bother with anything. I need to withdraw from all of life. If it's the case that the one who works hard is going to die, just like the one who's lazy, if it's the case that the wise man and the fool will both meet the same end, then I won't bother with any of it. Now, you remember, of course, that in the New Testament, we're warned against this kind of approach to creation, this kind of approach to life. Apostle Paul is very clear in 1 Timothy 4 that there is a kind of asceticism which attempts to take life seriously and to think it through in a Christian way, but yet does things like forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that are, that are created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And you remember what the Apostle Paul goes on to say in that very context where he's refuting this false teaching, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And I think if we were to take those words of the Apostle Paul and compare them to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, beginning in verse 24, we'd see that really that's the conclusion to which the preacher is pointing us as well. 
What he says in verse 24 is this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. In a sense, what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is is introducing to us is the idea that in fact, all of these things, some of which are sinful and wrong, some of which actually are good and beneficial, all of these things are not meant to be the end in themselves. What if, the writer is asking us, you weren't supposed to find full meaning and solidity in these things? What if they were gifts placed in your path to point you to a greater reality? That's the teaching that we find in verse 24. One of my former colleagues, a good friend of mine, used to have this tradition with his uh, children that uh, he, they, would, they uh, were in the habit of, of giving presents at Christmas time. And what he would do is he would uh, attach a string uh, to, to the, the door uh, of each of his children's bedrooms. And that string would wind through the house and wind around the corners and, and down the stairs and out into the back. I mean, he was a far better father than I've even thought of being. Uh, and and, and it, would, it would wind around the trees in the yard. And eventually, if, the, if his son or daughter followed the string, there would be the present at the end. And what he told me about this was there was a kind of hazard in doing this because even when his kids got to be adults, even when they didn't care about the present at the end, they would still say to him, Dad, are you going to do the string thing again this year? And he'd have to set it up once again. But, but you know, there's something like that in this text. Because I think to make sense of what the writer is saying here, we have to realize that he's telling us to look at all of our accomplishments, look at the accomplishments, look at, look at the good things, look at the enjoyments, the good gifts that God gives to us, but to look at them, recognizing them for what they are. Do they in and of themselves change the fact that we're all going to die? No, they don't, but they're not to be rejected for that reason. In fact, what he says is, This itself is from the hand of God, because apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The writer recognizes that the best thing that we can do when faced with this reality is to enjoy those gifts that God has given us to enjoy. And that in itself is the point he's making. This text requires you to enjoy these gifts as a gift from God to whom you are connected. And that, I think, pulls us to the main implication of this text, which is that all of this is premised on the idea that God is the loving Father who has given us these gifts for our enjoyment. One commentator puts it this way, the gift of God does not make the quote-unquote meaninglessness, the ephemeral nature, go away, but it's the gift that makes this very state 
enjoyable. And this can only happen if you recognize a few things about yourself. You have to recognize, first of all, that you are created by God and that every good and perfect gift comes from him. Bible also teaches us that our sin has estranged us by nature from God, our creator, and that God himself has provided the means of reconciliation through his son. But this is what life is. This is what our life on earth is. It's a, it's a gift from God. It's ultimately ephemeral if just taken on its own terms, but it's a pointer to something greater and deeper and eternal. The repetition of this statement, vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless, should simply cause us to give thanks to God that, in fact, this life isn't to be taken strictly on its own terms with him out of the picture. It's only when understanding that it's a gift from him and that the enjoyment of it is a gift from him that we can begin to make sense of it. We also have to acknowledge as well that even death, death itself, which seems to undercut all of the presumed accomplishments that are reviewed in this chapter, even death, according to the Bible, isn't the end of the story. History's final chapter has yet to be played out, but we know what it will be. Jesus Christ came and died to take the penalty for our sin. So that even though we live under the curse of sin and death, and therefore in the kind of futility of history, that's not our ultimate hope. If Futility is all you have to look forward to. What Jesus Christ offers is a new and living hope. Paul says the last enemy to destroyed, to be destroyed is the enemy that the writer of Ecclesiastes has so clearly in view, which is death. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory, sown in weakness, and raised in power. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this revealing look at the world in which you've placed us. We thank you for the hope to which it points us, for the questions it forces us to ask, and for the way in which it recalibrates our life. We ask that you would do that by your spirit as we reflect upon your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.